Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How would you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset, and that's when you can reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. Look, it's summertime. Transfer window is coming up. It's gonna get crazy. So if you ever just wanna, again, take a step back and relax, read the transfer rounds, read the gossip rumors, grab a Coors Light. It'll be perfect companion for all those transfer merry-go-rounds. There's only one beer out there that's literally made to chill, and that's Coors Light. The mountains on the bottles and cans even turn blue when the beer is cold. That way you always know when it's time to chill. When you need to hit reset, just open a Coors Light. It's mountain cold refreshment made to chill. Now that it's finally hot in Minnesota, I'm gonna be looking for an easy beer to drink, and Coors Light is perfect for that. It's lagered, it's cold filtered, and it's cold packaged. It's, again, made to chill. It's crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies perfect for a moment to unwind and so when you want to hit reset reach for the beer that's made to chill get coors light in the new look delivered straight to your door with drizzly or instacart coors brewing company golden colorado and as always celebrate all right so you're listening to this podcast right now london is blue and guess what we host our podcast on anchor.fm that's right if you're looking to host your own podcast this is the easiest free way to get started. This has got a content creation tool allows you to record and the podcast right from a phone. That's right, don't even need a computer, but you can do it there too. They'll also help you distribute it, which is probably the most challenging part. You don't want to have to mess with that. They got you covered. You can get it right on a Spotify and Apple Podcasts as well as any other place podcasts are found. And you know what? You can monetize it too. Make a little cash for sharing your great content with the world. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one individual place. So you know what? Head over to your app store, download the Anchor app, or head to anchor.fm to get started if you're ready to launch your podcast and make it happen. This is the London is Blue podcast. All things Chelsea. Keeping you up to date on the latest news from Stamford Bridge. Match recaps, previews, presented by WorldSoccerShop.com. It's the London is Blue podcast. Here's your hosts, Brandon, Dan, and Nick. All right. Guess what, Chelsea fans? We're back with a special international break podcast because, well, honestly, I just don't know what else to do with my weekends, Nick. I mean, it is 9.45 a.m. on a Saturday, and here we are. Yeah, like we could be doing a a number of things, some productive, some not, but it's like muscle memory, Dan, like you just kind of have to do it. Um, You know, it's like, it's like riding a bike. Uh, It does align with uh, Antonio's philosophy of work, work, work. So, you know, I think we're just the model example of what that should be. Now that is a high bar we are going to have to achieve. <laughs> Not sure about that, Dan. <laughs> hey, okay. Um, well, uh, you know, glad that you guys now know Dan and Nick back on the pod. But uh, you should know by now if you follow us on social media. But if not, well, maybe we've got a bit of a surprise for you. We've got Joe Tweeds joining us for this one. So, uh, as always, welcome back, Joe. Yeah, good to be back, guys. Uh, yeah, same with you. The uh, international break always goes on a little bit too long. But uh, glad to be treated to a uh, Loftus Cheek masterclass last night to kind of tide me over until the season kicks Ooh. off again. Mm, spicy. He was the spicy. double Meg too. Yes, Ooh. the double. <laughs> I mean, man of the match on your debut. What? 
Yeah, no, I think it's, uh, I suppose people who are slightly unfamiliar with him, it might have been a bit of a surprise, but he's always seemed to have kind of rose to the, the level of opposition and the occasion. And yeah, I, I was just glad that he kind of did himself justice. And, you know, it's always good to be in conversation, to be on the plane for, for the World Cup. So hopefully, yeah, hopefully he keeps playing well for Palace and keeps getting looks in from uh, from Southgate and potentially can end up on the, uh, the plane to uh, Russia. Sure question for you. What position did he play? <laughs> Mix of eight and ten, I thought. Yeah, so it's uh, well, actually eight, ten, a bit, of, a bit of six. So he, he kind of held towards the end of the game. He was kind of a, a mixture of sort of an eight and a ten for most of the game, but kind of a bit like Lampard. He sort of had this sort of three role within kind of a three-man midfield, which I thought really, really suits him. But yeah, you know, it, it, the one thing it wasn't he wasn't playing as a centre forward, which was uh, good. <laughs> Yeah, you got to let those those long legs run a little bit. That's what they were built for. But um, anyways, getting his back on on track a little bit with the news coming out earlier this week that Michael Emanalo has resigned. He submitted his resignation as technical director at Chelsea. We wanted to take this week, do a little homework, uh, make some phone calls, you know, track down the, the stories and, and see what the real impact of Emanalo had in his you know 10-ish years at Chelsea and and then look ahead to who maybe even will fill this role but real quick we want to give a, a few shout outs for five-star reviews in iTunes as always right Dan yeah the uh, palpable excitement is right there for some <laughs> iTunes reviews uh, five stars from the UK uh, CFC boy 1995 Jason Watt CFC Rab 12 from the US Bearded Bard uh, ben- uh, Benign Quibble Great Scott with an eight and then Mums 15. Thanks for leaving a five star on iTunes. And as always, if you drop one there, I'll make sure to give you a shout out on the pod. If I had to take a stab, I'd say begin equilib, which would probably short for equilibrium, bringing the balance hmm. back to the world. We appreciate you guys. And, uh, and a quick shout out for the one star review that we got last week. We don't have many of those, but it keeps us grounded. You know, Dan, <laughs> I really felt like I really felt like that was a good one. It really yeah, I, I will say that I think they make a good point is that, you know, we've we've had to talk about officiating a little bit more this season than I think in seasons past. But when you can agree with Arsene Wenger that the state of officiating is bad, you know, maybe we do go on a little long about it. But uh, there's a larger problem at hand. We're not alone. We're not the only ones it directly affects it. Um, anyways, we had some interesting kind of reactions when we posted this out, Nick, that we'd be talking about Eminalo. And I think that there's no doubt he's a divisive figure, probably best known to most Chelsea fans for the interview he did with Chelsea TV post Jose Mourinho being sacked for the second time. Well, the second time he left. All right, let's not get into semantics. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I guess what are some of the questions that we had that, that rolled in a little bit? Oh, God. So I think I'm looking at, at Come On Chelsea from our friends in Canada, uh, which posted an Office Space uh, GIF, which I am a massive fan of. So if you want a quick way to my heart, Office Space is right there. They asked, Dan, what exactly did Emin Hollow do at Chelsea? <laughs> <laughs> That's so perfect. With the, with the what exactly do you do here? He took uh, the request space. from the manager to the board. <laughs> uh, I thought that was great. And then uh, V Factor 07. Is there, a way, is there a way to know about who exactly handled the transfer decisions and what went on behind closed doors? Also, who is most likely to take up that position or will Marina handle that as well? Um, so that was V Factor. And then we had... 
uh, Matre on, I think, was Insta. this Instagram? Yep. So considering that so many people are overjoyed by Eminala's departure, departure uh, also generally admit to having no idea what role he has at Chelsea. Should we be concerned that the people who do know what he did clearly thought he was very good at it? By the way, Eminala's training top was always... Uh, always be best because he used to just have M-E or me on it. I'll probably change his name to make that happen if from the uh, the haters, right? They'll say, <laughs> they'll say he, changed, he changed his name so it said me on there. Yeah. So lot, lots of questions, Brandon. Lots of questions about what exactly the role was, what impact he had, blah, blah, blah. Exactly right, and and that's kind of what this episode is built around, and that is why we brought Joe Tweeds on Admittedly, as Americans coming late to the Chelsea game, uh, we don't always know the ins and outs of the club as much because, uh, you know, a lot of that stuff doesn't make the news over here like it does over there. So um, we are really excited uh, to bring Joe on for this. So um, the first one we'll kick off with is the scouting network, which is one of the three things that Eminola did. Uh, but real quick. Um, as always, our uh, our complimentary message to World Soccer Shop, Nick, because Black Friday and Cyber Monday are coming up and guaranteed World Soccer Shop is going to have the hookups going on, won't they? Absolutely. Um, so if you were around last year for this time, uh, you know that we had some some pretty awesome content builds with World Soccer Shop and also like a lot of really cool deals. And we did some contests for giveaways and things. So stay tuned for all that. Uh, we're speaking with them this week and should have some some actionable stuff come out. But if you're looking to buy any certain items, Dan, for the for the fan in your life, uh, Black Friday is a really good opportunity to uh, catch some deals, huh? Yeah, Black Friday, so right after you've stuffed that belly and you're looking for something to do, you'll get an opportunity to do that Friday morning. And then uh, the following Monday is a big online shopping day and Cyber Monday. So just head to worldsoccershop.com and look for that sweet deals on Chelsea gear. All right. Well, let's go ahead and jump into the scouting network. Uh, Joe, as we kind of talk about the three tenants that rolled up to Eminalo, um, we would say that the scouting, overseeing the network of scouts was a big thing for him. I know Chelsea completely demolished and started over their whole scouting network in 2011. And um, from what I'm reading online, Eminalo actually had a pretty big piece in how this structure was built and then the, the kind of ongoing overseeing the program. Yeah, I think that that's uh, it's quite a good way of putting it. So, I mean, originally Chelsea had a guy called Frank Arneson, who people may or may not remember, who was sort of brought in originally, I think in sort of the Peter Kenyon era, sort of the beginning of the Abramovich era at Chelsea to kind of oversee a, a similar sort of thing of what Emanalo eventually ended up doing. Arneson's approach was to have a... Uh, a vast array of, of scouts all around the world, sort of different regions. And for those of you who like playing football manager, you know, he had like 25, 30 scouts all covering different sort of regions and areas. And generally, I think the, the point of view or the, the, the general, um, uh, I suppose the, the, the general thing they were looking for was to, to scout young talent. So if you sort of think back to some of the earlier academy sides that Chelsea had, the likes of Gal Kakuta, Ben Sahar, Patrick Van Arnholt, Bruma, sort of some of these names that, that were pretty uh, decent academy acquisitions actually came from uh, obviously overseas compared to the UK. Um, and, and that was kind of the original focus was to really start scouting thoroughly the sort of uh, the younger ages. So kind of between the ages of sort of uh, 14 to 18, but also looking at tapping into some of that younger talent around the globe. So, you know, being able to pinch someone like Arjen Robben from Manchester United sort of scouting network or some of these other similar players that we brought in 
quite a young age Michael Essien again would be a very good example of someone who I think was a very very good player at Lyon but obviously took himself to another level at Chelsea and that sort of early kind of scouting I think was was, was kind of what Frank Carnison was famed for and, and Emanale really came in and um, from, from what I understand took a slightly more um, analytical approach to it so um, less kind of physical in-person scouting more um, sort of using analytics and, and computers and film to look at players and then still going to send scouts to uh, to watch matches but I think they were being trying to be a lot more selective with with the networking side of things. So, for example, if you were in France and you were a French scout potentially under Arneson, you would probably be watching sort of, you know, every single game probably, you know, that you could possibly get to within the sort of the physical capabilities of travel, whereas sort of under kind of the Emanalo system, you're more looking at players, okay, so we think maybe Corentin Talisso or Fabien Nekir or whoever the next kind of uh, buzz player from Lyon is, we think they're pretty good. We, we want to do some kind of basic video scouting, some analytical work on them, and then we want to go and watch them in person. So, you know, I think it kind of depends in, in terms of your, your approach to scouting. I know... Uh, there's quite a big sort of dichotomy between the sort of uh, the analytics-based approach, where you obviously you're crunching numbers and thinking, okay, this player ticks ticks the kind of boxes that we're looking for, versus going to sort of just watch games and find players, which I think was probably more of the kind of early approach. So, yeah, I mean that that spit that you're talking about from Emanalo was pretty much a a move or departure from from having uh, high volume um, eyeballs at matches to a slightly more focused and, and uh, analytical approach. So, yeah, that 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 for me was a, was the big change there. Awesome. So it definitely sounds like a huge kind of technology change, kind of upgrade as well. Um, you know, Nick, we did get some tweets from people saying, "Hey, who are the best purchases? The worst purchases? What are like, you know, his." his biggest impact and his worst impacts that he had. Um, and, and a lot of that's hard to say because we honestly don't know the exact extent of what he was literally saying yes and no to and what was more kind of a, a collaboration between like him and Marina and Bruce Buck and different people on the board. So, um, but I think we can, what we can do is we can just kind of run through some of the years that he was technical director and maybe highlight some of the big signings that were seen at that time uh, through that year. So I guess, do you want to kick off with 2011, 2012 season? Yeah. I mean, for, first of all, uh, Kano speaks SP Beal and, and J Michael CFC. Thank you for these types of questions you know i think that's kind of where we wanted to start this uh this section so uh in the 2011-12 uh year um there were uh some really quality acquisitions i think this you know might even be the most impressive uh, of the of the bunch but juan mata you know club legend favorite um Lukaku, Courtois, De Bruyne, all from that young Belgian contingent. And then Gael Kakuta, who was, you know, a super hot young prospect at the time. Dan, 2012-13? Not to be outdone. uh, And Hazard joined, along with Oscar. uh, Now a starter for the squad, Victor Moses. Azpilicueta for £7 million, which is the ultimate bargain, I think. And then uh, Marco Marin. Oh man, you remember him? The oh, German boy. Messi, I believe. <laughs> legend, absolute legend. <laughs> and Joe doesn't throw the word legend around a lot, so yeah. I tell him. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's up there with the Essians and Balaks of this world. Hey, hey, don't worry. I've got another legend coming for you in uh, 2015-16. Joe, I'll tee you up. Uh, what about 20? So 2013-14 was kind of interesting tweets because we saw some guys come in 
um, and like Sherla came in in the fall and then was gone in the winter. You know, you had William, Modic returned, Sala, Zuma, Von Hinkle, Atsu. A couple of those guys, especially Von Hinkle and Atsu, were really highly rated as, you know, kind of Chelsea <laughs> vying to win their signatures, and we did. I think an important point to note on the timeline here is that this is the time, 2013, when Marina Granovskovia came into sort of real influence at Chelsea. So from 2013 onwards was when uh, her kind of sphere of influence, her uh, input into the club, I think really changed um, in, in terms of sort of the previous years. So, you know, you look at sort of 2011 to 13, I mean, there are one, two, three, four, I mean, you might say five absolute sort of superstar players that we picked up there. Maybe, I don't know, if we, if we go through the next few years, we might not have five in the next three, four seasons. So real, real change in, uh, in, in tactic from the club. I think from 2013 onwards, we became a lot more cost conscious, a lot more focused around um, sort of trying to balance the books. Uh, you can kind of see that potentially with the hazard transfer. You know, that was one of the ones where, you know, to give Emanalo his credit, that was you know, his major, major influence at the club was getting to the, the club to sign Eden Hazard. He was the main person. He's... His French ability to speak for Hazard, Hazard's parents, the club, etc. That was that was one of the key reasons he joined. But also, one of the things that we've seen now is that uh, that was we paid him an absolutely huge fee to Hazard's uh, Hazard's agent. Whereas I think now today we're seeing less and less of that. And in fact, some cases, some transfers are not going through because we're refusing to play ball with agents. So that kind of transition from 2013 onwards, that's when you kind of see Chelsea start, starting to change uh, tactics in the transfer market. Well, you might need to give it one year. Because 2014-15 saw Diego Costa, Cesc Fabregas, Juan Cuadrado, Felipe Luis, and Pasalic. Again, another uh, very highly rated up-and-coming youngster. Uh, this season, Nick, literally, it was like Jose Mourinho gave him the list, and they went and delivered, which is not exactly how it went in 2015-16 after <laughs> winning the league. Well, are you sure? Because I see a bona fide legend on the 2015-16 list in Pappy Gilaboji. And I think we can all agree <laughs> that was the signing of the summer. Um, he played for one minute, and frankly, I think we all miss him. All uh, legends so. are signed on deadline day <laughs> at 11 p.m. Correct. Um, we also signed Michael Hector, Matt Miazga, um, Kennedy, Baba Rockman, uh, we got we had Bego in 2015-16, um, so now now at uh, at Bournemouth, but um, legend, and then uh, and then Pedro, you know, who, I, you know, good signing, but Pedro was probably the only good signing out of that bunch in 2015-16. So kind of a down year for the signings. How do we recover uh, last season, Dan? Oh, well, we saw uh, hashtag minutes for Mishi join up along <laughs> with. Uh, the never-ending Energizer Bunny and N'Golo Conte, David Luiz, returns, uh, does the boomerang effect, and uh, Marcus Alonso uh, becomes everybody's favorite player to hate who ultimately uh, holds down the left side for the entire season. You know, it's kind of interesting, right? Because you feel like the 2015-16, 2016-17, really, you know, N'Golo Conte is the bright star with Pedro. Yeah. So you feel like you got one, like, first-team quality player in each of these seasons. And then we go into 2017-18, where you get Morata, Bakayoko, Drinkwater, Rudiger, and Zapacosta, where you can say three of those guys are starters. Drinkwater is in serious contention for minutes. And Zapacosta really just depends on the day if he's going to play or not with Moses being out. Um, but I don't know, I guess, Joe, the way you see it, the way I kind of look at this is it, it ebbs and flows quite a bit. Like once we got past the 13-14 season of maybe you'll get a couple starters, but a lot of times you're just getting a lot of squad depth in these signings. 
Yeah, and I think obviously the, the the fact that we're not showing is that we've also let a lot of quality go during this period. So, you know, if you were to take, for example, 2011 onwards and say that these are players that we've added to a squad, I mean, that list of players look, looks incredibly impressive if you were to be able to keep them and mould them into a unit. But we have lost a lot of quality during this period as well. So my, my main contention has been that at least for, probably for the past two seasons, maybe three arguably, that we've had to to sell some very, very good players to bring in players. Um, you know, And it's almost kind of a, a one-out-one-in policy. Um, I think, you know, this season in particular, the sort of, you know, the kind of the, the deals that we were doing, Bakayoko was sort of replacement for Matic. And I think Drinkwater was just kind of a, not a last-minute signing, but someone that, that Conte's been after for a while for sort of depth and Rudiger we let you know we just kind of got rid of uh, Zuma out on loan and Rudiger's kind of come in and yeah I mean it's it's uh, you know, probably yeah probably the past two seasons has been this kind of obviously we have to sell to buy strategy and I would question maybe from sort of 2015 onwards how well we've bought and how well we've sold considering the the biggest issue or the biggest moan from from Conte and from from a lot of fans is the depth within the squad because we have sold a lot of players and we are buying in a lot of what I consider rotational players to start every single game. You know, I don't, I don't mind if uh, if if a certain player plays, you know, 20, 30 games a season if he's rotating in and he's he's keeping another guy fresh. But the fact that we've gone into the season with just Marcus Alonso as a left back, you know, and actually to be fair, I mean, he's a left wing back. I, I wouldn't be very very happy if we played a, a flat back four and he was a left back. So you know, we've got one left wing back. We might not have a single natural full back who's left footed in the squad. That that kind of thing worries me. Um, and it's something I think the club has has committed to in sort of the marina era is, is being a lot more cost conscious and driving driving uh, profits each season. I think I think we do turn a profit in, in transfers, particularly when you you add in loan fees and all the other stuff that we have going on. But we can talk about that a little, a little bit later. But yeah, it just seems that it's it's a lot more driven by cost rather than quality. And I don't think necessarily that we had the foundation in the squad to to start taking that approach when we did. I think we we needed to invest quite heavily into starting uh, caliber players sort of, you know, your kind of Maratas, that sort of level of player that we should have been targeting maybe sort of 2015 onwards. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of a, a situation now where I think Conte is, is quite unhappy with with the depth and, and hopefully it's something that we can sort out. But yeah, it's uh, for me, it's, it's, it's been a definite trend um, towards being a lot more cost conscious. And, you know, people will point to the fact that we've obviously delivered two lead titles during that time. But, you know, the, the long-term impacts of that this season is, is do we become a yo-yo club who who can only sort of deliver lead tasks when we've only got one competition to focus on, which is one of the questions that I'm asked on Twitter quite a bit. So, yeah. Um, well, I was, I would, sorry, I was I just, like, I, no, no, I think, yeah. I think to your, to your point, I just want in, in our, in our live script for those who are getting a look behind the curtain, I just went and highlighted the players who are still with Chelsea since 2011, 12, at least those signings that have, have stayed along. Um, and it looks like one, two, three, four, five, well, I guess six being on loan, which is Zuma, uh, Palisic being on loan, Fabregas being in the squad. So, like, the the list of players, to, the, to, to your point, Joe, that were sold in this time period, De Bruyne, Lukaku, Juan Mata, Oscar, Mate, Shirla, Sala, you know, these are, these are also big names that have gone on yes. to do big yeah. things at other clubs, too. You know, this is... Uh, you know, not just a, a Chelsea success, unfortunately. No, I mean, I, I'd, I'd agree on that. And I think, again, one of the things that I, I sort of want to highlight slightly is that this uh, Chelsea's sort of transfer strategy kind of operates in sort of like a trifecta of doom, as I like to call it. So you have the... Uh, <laughs> That's yeah. so British of you, the trifecta yes. of doom. <laughs> yeah. 
So you've, you've got the commercial side, which has sort of been the marina side. You've got the kind of technical scouting side, which, which was Emanalo. And then you've got the uh, the Conte side of things. So obviously the, the management involvement as well. Now, depending on your biases and persuasions, you would probably allocate a different percentage of weighting to their opinions. But generally, the, the, the way that this has been communicated to me is that we have kind of a three-pronged um, input into who we buy and sell. Now, I think yeah, recently, as I was saying, I think that weighting has moved slightly towards Marina's area and less aware and, and less to do with with Emanale, which I think prop is partly one of the reasons that he he opted to leave when he did because he was sort of being slightly marginalised in his approach. But the uh, yeah, I mean, the, the main thing I wanted to mention really from this is I don't think over the past couple of years, considering the players you know that we've that we've bought in and let go, who have gone on to do very very you know big things elsewhere, Salas, Quadrado's played well at Juventus, obviously. Um, uh, De Bruyne has been you know, absolutely incredible. Lukaku's a really fantastic striker. You know, it's it's this kind of alignment between the manager and, and the club. So the sort of the Emanales and the Marinas of this world is, you know, what what direction of, are we going as a football club? I think we we flip between strategies too often for my liking, and this is where you get this kind of sort of misalignment of players. So we go out and buy a load of really good players, but they might not fit the manager that season, but they might fit the manager the following season or the following season after that, and just the fact that there doesn't really appear to be sort of that any kind of long-term strategy so you know, the comparison I make is in, you have like a general manager in the NFL who tends to be there quite a long period of time they have like a long-term view of what they want to do what kind of players they want to bring in and they bring in a coach that can kind of mould those players and obviously get get victories that kind of approach would probably suit Chelsea quite well because it, it, they're really the only continuity that the club has is, is those uh, those people at, at board level you know if you come in and Conte obviously likes players who are very physical and run around a lot and you know then you have to look at players some players that we potentially brought in who, who don't fit that Batshuayi is a very good example of a player that I don't think really fits Conte's style I think he's a good player good finisher um, doesn't necessarily fit Conte's style and it's reflected in the fact that he doesn't play um, even someone like Zappacosta who I think you know Maybe it's just an acclimatisation to the Premier League thing, but I would have anticipated him playing a lot more than he has done so far, particularly with uh, Moses being injured. You know, the fact that Aspilicueta has been pretty much the, the sort of the de facto second choice right, right wing back is slightly peculiar. But yeah, just this kind of misalignment between, I think, some of the, the areas, you know, within that kind of triangle approach that we have, I think just leads to slightly confused um, squad building and, and necessarily you know, we're kind of sort of pigeonholing ourselves into sort of maybe being able to play like one or two systems whereas I think this going forward a slightly more flexible approach with uh, you know kind of a, perhaps more input from scouting and more input from the management about what kind of style of players they want versus you know let's just get sort of the most cost efficient player in who is a centre back who might not be able to do the things that we want to do so yeah it's it's I think it's it's, it's been an interesting approach definitely post 2013 Um but I think again, whether it's worked or not, a lot of people would just say, "Yeah, look at the look at the league titles." But again, you know, it's, it's, it all comes to the point of, of today. You know, we, we can't rely on the fact that we won the league title last season to, to to suggest that it's successful. I don't, you know, this season has, has seen us lose some pretty silly games to people like Crystal Palace and be sort of blown out of the water by Man City. And, and you know, it's it's kind of are we are we analysing the performance or are we analysing the, the the results? It's uh, yeah, a slight, a slight tangent there, but um, yeah, I, I just think it, I, the the whole club would, would benefit from a lot more close knit sort of forward thinking uh, strategy around transfers. Cause at the moment, I don't I don't see it happening.
Well, obviously, as we look at this as a whole, that we don't know who was on the scouting board that wasn't picked up. Obviously, we only know what happened in the end. Um, And I think that as you look at this list, there are a lot of quality players that Chelsea discovered and were able to bring in. So I honestly think that assuming, because again, we don't know that Emanalo was in charge for letting these players kind of rise to the surface and eventually becoming Chelsea players, it was a success successful time. Now, Joe, you brought up the fact that uh, the, the one thing, so Chelsea try to run themselves as if everything else needs to work no matter who the manager is. So we're going to continue to get these types of players. We're going to run our academy in a certain way, which is a little different under my understanding to other clubs. Uh, obviously, the, the, the most well-known was La Masia in Barcelona, where they all play the same system top to bottom. Like talk about being in sync. They are it you know they have a very clear identity now let me run through the managers real quick in this time Eminolo is here and then Dan Dan I'm just interested in hearing like your thoughts like how closely uh, similar are their styles or not so you've obviously got Ancelotti left uh, right as he was coming in in May 2011 Uh, Andre Villas-Boas Di Matteo Benitez Jose Part 2 Goose hitting part two, and now Antonio Conte. <laughs> Gosh. When you look at these guys stylistically, I mean, you were switching every 12 to 18 months because of the mm-hmm. cycle of firing these managers, you know, Benitez, Di Matteo, Villas-Boas, Ancelotti, Mourinho. All of these guys were fired mid-season. Yeah, and you think about the idea of a Venn diagram and the overlap of you know player style and manager style. And you would imagine that Chelsea is the one who's kind of helping to put those circles as close together and have the highest level of overlap. And I think that's to the point where Joe is making their, without the long-term strategy and long-term planning, you're really not putting yourself in a position to be successful, to add the right squad players and then the right star players. Uh, I know it always you know, makes Nick cringe when I kind of compare anything to the Patriots, but like that's the type of <laughs> man God. management and player personnel management that, you know, I think Chelsea as a team would really want to strive for versus operating uh, a little bit more closely to the uh, the clusterfuck that is the the Browns front office. <laughs> yes, that's yeah, a, good, a good comparison. A lesson in life: you don't want to be the Browns. Um, the, the Browns are the Browns are not good. Sorry, Cleveland. Uh, yep, sorry. Uh, you know, look, I, I think when you you know I think to Brandon's point, think about just take Eden Hazard as like, you know, a standout player for this and, you know, for the most part of this time period, I think, you know, he came in in 2012. He's played in a bunch of different positions, been asked to do a bunch of different things. And when you think about his Chelsea tenure, which is, you know, coming up on six years now, which is kind of incredible. You know, I I think when we look at his overall performance, you know, there, there probably is something in that, you know, there's probably, you know, when you look at, um, you know, how he was asked to be played uh, underneath like Benitez or underneath, um, you know, Jose part two, you know, goose hitting, I will try and erase from my memory forever. But um, and definitely last year under Conte and this year under Conte, he's being asked to do two different things just within a calendar year. Right. Like when you think of the front two versus the front three from last year, it's like a whole different deal. Um, So I don't know. That's just one example, guys, of like, yes, the manager, the managerial merry-go-round has probably negatively impacted the the player performances as well because there's just change 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 every single year essentially 
Yeah, I mean, just just to add to that, I mean, I think the the, the main thing about Chelsea's sort of lack of cohesive direction is you, you don't go from Ancelotti to bringing in like the next big thing in, in, in AVB. However well he did here, you know, he was perceived to be this kind of forward thinking, you know, ticky tacker attack minded manager and then get rid of him. And then, you know, the next real proper sort of permanent appointment was uh, was Jose Mourinho. You know, so you've kind of gone from two very distinct footballing philosophies and okay we had you know Di Matteo and Benitez in between that but I think Di Matteo was always going to be sort of a dead man walking and Benitez was really only going to be there until the end of the season so you, you've almost sort of diametrically opposed in the t- in the two footballing philosophies that you've appointed in managers and again you know if you're if you're in Emanalo's position and you're scouting I mean how, how are you how are you sort of figuring in a play are you looking at you know okay this player works for this season but he might not work next season you know we could bring in the two best centre-backs in the world this season who were fantastic at playing in a three-man uh, defence but if Conte goes in the end of the season and the new manager wants to play 4 through 3 and both of these centre-backs are not very good as uh, two central defenders then you know we've we've wasted a lot of money there so um, yeah it's just a, I think a very good example of just just how confused and, and I don't want to say direct direction this because you know it's you, you don't have the success that we've had without, without having some kind of direction but I do often think that you know if we had a bit more cohesion and a little bit more forward planning just how much more successful we could have been in this uh, in this period. Well, and I would I will I will rapid fire here, Brandon, because I know that we we will get into Joe's favorite part, which is the academy, here in a second. Yes. But I need I need everybody's best signing, worst signing, and then you know who of these you know, and I and I mean world class being you know a top three in their respective you know kind of positions in the world. Who who of these signings are world class? So, Brandon, I will let you start. Uh, so world class signings. I mean, I think that everyone will say Eden Hazard, rightly so. Um, yep. Don't really want to rock the boat at all. I want to be consistent to who I am as a person and say Thibaut Courtois. <laughs> of course you are. Yeah, I think that's a fair shout. Um, Joe, who's your world class signing or world class uh, signings? Yeah, I'll go with Hazard World Class. I think best signing, I'll go with Azpilicueta just because the versatility and the amount of money yeah. we paid for him. Um, and worst signing, I'm going to go with Papi Gilabodji because it was just the ultimate what on earth is going on moment at Chelsea. Though, though we did sell him for a profit to Sunderland as course, they were yes. going down, which was quite quite amazing in that too. That was classic Sunderland. Dan? Uh, yeah, Hazard probably ends up being the the best signing. Um, worst signing? I mean, how, many, how many minutes did Marco Marin end up playing for Chelsea? Oh, that's <laughs> a good one. Uh, and then, uh, I mean, world class signings. I, I, I think you know we, we see what happens when we're not. You know, Conte's not on the side. Uh, I think he, mm-hmm. Courtois, and Hazard are probably our three uh, yeah. world class. Yeah. Yeah, I would go N'Golo Kante, I'd go Hazard. I think De Bruyne was a world-class signing that we just didn't know about. Um, Lukaku always has the potential to be up there, you know, if he ever gets first touch. Um, so, like, all, that whole group is is world-class. I think Fabregas is, hypothetically, if we ever find a true position for him, potentially world-class. Um, best signing is definitely Hazard. Worst signing? Let's see here. I mean, it has to be, just from a minute standpoint, like, again, Poppy was in the first team. I have a good one. I think perhaps 
Juan Cuadrado might be our worst signing. I think for, for, for the amount that we paid for him and the expectations coming off of that World Cup, he was garbage at Chelsea. I guess that's true. I forgot about like how much he costs and everything and yeah. It's not, it's not all his fault. at his expense. <laughs> true. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, um, real quick, I think that we just want to uh, move it on to the Academy real quick, though. I mean, Nick, super simple. Uh, we just have a question for everyone. A question. We're going to tee up a question for you. Um, so we know that you guys are, you know, we've had a lot of people tweet links out um, to their favorite stuff on World Soccer Shop. We're asking you to do that again. Um in the next couple of weeks uh, before kind of Thanksgiving period so that we kind of have an idea of what would potentially be on wish lists and whatnot. So if you can do that, that would be great. Um, again, we're kind of working on some stuff behind the scenes with World Soccer Shop to to maybe do some promo codes or some gift giving or uh, or maybe line up a, uh, a holiday gift guide. So um, holler at us, tweet at us, DM us, whatever you got to do, but that would be great. All right, here we go. So Academy time-wise, uh, this would be the second part of the, the three legs that, you know, came under Michael Amanalo, obviously, and is, you know, what he handled at Chelsea. So the Academy, right? Our youth Academy that is supposed to create an environment for these kids to have a shot at, um, you know, playing for the first team, you know, plain and simple. So uh, some highlights of the Academy over the years, uh, they are two-time UEFA Youth League winners in 2015-16, the U18 Premier League National Champions 2016-17, and then an unprecedented eight FA Youth Cups, uh, 60-61, right? So way back when, but... In the more recent history, 2010, 2012, and then a four-year win streak in 2014, 15, 16, and 17. Just rattling them off as of lately. Um, you know, and I know Eminalo oversaw this, Tweeds, but, you know, you and I have been talking via DM, DM as well uh, about Neil Bath's role as the head of youth development. And I would point out that he's actually been teed up as someone to potentially take over or step into this role as well. So what do you know about Neil Bath and what he does uh, at the academy? I think actually Neil Bath's influence, so for, for those of you who are unfamiliar, I think he started working at Chelsea in the early 90s. And I think one of the most influential people, particularly in the dire- direction of modern Chelsea, was Glenn Hoddle. And he had this uh, this phrase and this idea of coming into Chelsea in sort of 94-ish when he sort of took over. And the phrase he used was that he wanted to create a uh, an Ajax on the Thames. So he wanted to create Chelsea or, or portray Chelsea as this kind of Ajax of London. And I think that sort of philosophy has really stuck with Bath because Bath was a youth team coach at that point in time. He would have obviously been very uh, kind of prominent in meetings with Holder around what they were trying to do to reshape the academy. And I think really since, you know, kind of 93, 94, when Bath has obviously been coaching and going through sort of the, the motions and the, the progression on that side of things, that he's he's learned a lot and he's obviously kept this kind of idea of creating this Ajax on the Thames with him um, pretty much since then. So, you know, his, his timeline at the club I think 2002, he became the academy director. He looked pretty much after everyone from under eights to 16s. 2004, became academy manager. And in 2011, became head of the youth development. The 2004 date's quite important because that's when he pretty much looked at the existing blueprint for Chelsea. And I think this is when he started to try and implement this uh, Glenn Hoddle Ajax on the Thames philosophy because he he completely did away with this sort of far and wide scouting system he wanted to focus on bringing in local talent talent around london talent in the southeast 
And I think, you know, the, the common or the common sort of idea around that time was that it would take about 10 years to start really seeing the benefits of this new system. So, you know, when you actually start looking at Chelsea's uh, kind of accrual of, of youth team cups from sort of 2010 onwards, I think they were very much ahead of the curve of, of where they intended to be. So, yeah, I think, you know, Bath has been very instrumental in the development of the academy system. He created sort of the, the kind of this this England DNA concept that, that came up recently. The, the kind of foundation of that, a lot of that came from Chelsea's academy system where they have kind of individualised player portfolios and, and, and kind of progression paths and things that they need to improve. And a lot of that really came from Chelsea's academy. And, you know, every single player has access to video analysis and to be able to look at their game and to really sort of monitor everything that they're doing. So, yeah, you know, he should take huge, huge credit for the academy. Um, I do take a little bit of umbrage that, you know, one of the, the main things I've seen from at least mainstream media is that, you know, m and should take credit for the academy. It's, you know, he, he kind of oversaw the uh, the academy. He didn't really have the kind of day-to-day influence that Bath has, has had. Um, and also, you know, the thing with Bath as well, he's very keen on introducing Chelsea people into the academy. So, you know, people like Jodie Morris, who's having an exceptional sort of early career as a coach, you know, right to uh, people like Brendan Rodgers, who, again, Someone Bath brought in, went on to manage Liverpool, having a lot of success with Celtic. So he's he's very good at getting talented people in the academy, particularly uh, those who have uh, been at the club. And he's he's kind of very key of uh, trying to create this sort of Chelsea identity um, with players. And I think the main thing that sets him apart from Romanalo is that if if Bath was to leave Chelsea tomorrow, he could go and head up La Masia, he could go and head up Real Madrid's academy, he could go and head up any academy in world football. And and you know he would be very much in demand. Whereas I think if when Romanalo leaves. I'm not sure if he's going to go and be able to come on that 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 the attention from those types of clubs um, that that Bath certainly can. But you know he's uh, he's been pretty much the, the main reason I think that Chelsea have had the success they've had over the past sort of you know probably from 2010 onwards, so nearly a decade of of unrivaled success at academy level has come from Bath's vision to to create this kind of you know Ajax system at Chelsea where you know, they've completely reforced and, and, and redesigned player development from the ground up. So, you know, and it's, it's no surprise now that when you see these players who are coming into the under-18s and starting to feature in the FA Youth Cups and star, you know, one of the, the, the really interesting things for me and one of the things that I really enjoy is to see that they've been at Chelsea since under-8s. You know, that's the first age group that you can get picked up at in England as a, as a kid. You know, and a lot of them, you know, maybe 10, 10, 12 out of a squad of like 20 or even more have, have progressed from sort of under 10s um, towards that level. So it's a it's a really, really fantastic achievement. And, you know, all, all the sort of success of the club, you know, in, in at first team level, the most impressive thing that potentially the club has done is actually develop this world-class youth academy system, which I think Bath, again, should take a lot of credit for. So, Dan, obviously with the academy... Chelsea want to Chelsea fans especially just want an academy player to graduate and go to the first team uh, John Terry being the last big name uh, in recent memory to have done that so the question everyone wants to know as this rolls up to Amanalo is the gap too big to jump from the academy to the first team uh, kind of what are your thoughts on this and, and where Chelsea are at uh, I think the gap only comes when there's a lack of plan. And I think what you're starting to see this season with the, you know, I think Ruben Loftus-Cheek, who we highlighted on earlier, from a structured standpoint of what actually will happen if he goes from the academy into an appropriate loan into then kind of coming back into the team can happen with the right foresight structure uh, and kind of plan in place. You know, now that he's getting, you know, actual game time, he's getting a chance to play at the level of, experience he's going to need to he can make that transition appropriately i think the struggle is that when you look alternatively to players that don't get a chance when they 
you know, Charlie Masanda seems to be one, I think, this season that people are, you know, really excited about getting to see him play. You know, went on loan to Real Batiste, uh, didn't necessarily go as well as potentially would have hoped as. Uh, comes back is you know trying to fight for time here when really is probably a, a lower down the totem pole comparatively to a few of the players who may come back after uh, a loan this season like uh, Tammy Abraham or Ruben Loftus Cheek who are probably going to be better equipped to make that transition into a, a Chelsea first team. Well, and I would I would quickly add to this too, and I think Joe could probably maybe just speak quickly to this. I think there is a desire at the club to have homegrown kind of locally sourced organic um, players <laughs> because it, I think there is an identity thing too. You know, I think, you know, as you've seen John Terry leave and Frank Lampard leave and, you know, some of those types of players who are English and who are, uh, you know, kind of from the area kind of get the fan base. I think there is a connection to the fan base that might be lacking if you don't have those types of players in the squad, right? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I completely agree. And I think, you know, very quickly on this, it, it also speaks to kind of the, the question, which I don't often really see people talk about, is, is what kind of player are we trying to produce? Are we trying to suggest that unless a player is absolutely world-class and, and everyone has to be a, considered to be a starter level, or are we happy to produce someone like Jesse Lingard at Manchester United who plays, you know, 30, 40 games a season, can deputise, you know, with good players around him, can put in a performance. I think at Chelsea, there seems to be this sort of massive hang-up that unless you are a, a de facto kind of default starting player and you're, you know, you're kind of first team, then then they've kind of failed. I mean, I would love to see someone come in, like maybe like a Casey Palmer, who uh, could play like in that inside forward role and who plays, you know, 20, 30 games a season, scores some important goals. And you never know, they could then develop and kick on to becoming more of a, considered to be more of a starter than a rotational piece. Because first of all, I mean, A, it gets sort of the local players and the academy players within the squad. It makes them an important part of the squad and the rotation. But equally, if it means that you don't have to go and spend 40, 50 million pounds on a rotation player, you can start putting that towards world-class players. And this has always been my thing is that I think if you were to really take advantage of how good our academy has been over the past few years and create the correct pathways um, you know these, these sort of money that we're spending on sort of back of yokers and drink waters you can you can combine that together you know you've got 80, 90 million to go and chuck at Griezmann or a really top class player rather than having to sort of go out and spend 40, 50 millions on, on four, five, six players every single summer just to kind of keep the, the quality of the squad at a certain level. So, yeah, you know, it's, it's, for me, it's a question of, of what level of player do we want to develop? And, and for me, I still think that we can have uh, decent, decent squad players coming from the academy. And I think the benefits are both for the fan base, but also for uh, the, the potential for Chelsea to go and buy top class players again. Right. And I think I think there is like a level of expectation, right? Like, I think we have to set expectations kind of across the board. If you're looking at La Masia, which is, I mean, you know, out of control talent um, pool that they've developed over, you know, a billion years uh, at, at Barcelona, not all those players are making the first team either. You know, like I, I think I think you kind of have to keep it in perspective. You know, yes, the, the cream will certainly rise to the top. And you're hoping that if you're Chelsea or if you're Barcelona, that your academy can produce a few of those, you know, world class players. But like Joe said, I mean, even if it's midfield depth and, and Ruben gets, you know, 20, 30 games next season at Chelsea, odds are those are going to be, you know, possible Champions League um Opportunities and, and things that he's definitely not going to get at Palace this year. So uh, you would hope that, you know, that um, that talent pool kind of produces something, you know, in, in the middle ground if if we can't get, you know, the, the world-class messy type of, of player out of the academy. 
Well, to me, I think that Chelsea would much rather let those players go prove themselves elsewhere and they will take the players that are already proven. And that is just the model, right or wrong, whether you like it or not, that is just how Chelsea does their business when it comes to youth players. So I guess, uh, Nick, piggybacking off that, do you think any of our current academy players will make the jump? I know that last March, Nisar from goal obviously pegged um, a few of the youngsters as ones to watch after they won the Youth Cup in 1516. Uh, and that was Dujon Sterling, who is still at Chelsea's Academy. Jada Silva is on loan at Charlton Athletic in League One. Mason Mount is on loan at Vitesse. Trevor Chalaba, still at the Academy. And Martel Taylor Crossdale, still in Chelsea's Academy. And special shout out to Tweeds, pointing to Callum Hudson Adoy, who I believe is still at the Academy. Yeah, I would say that, and, and Joe brought him to our attention last year, Dujon Sterling has a legit chance, I think. Um, there, there's been more buzz around him than I believe any of the other players, and I think Trevor Shiloba might have a chance. I, I'm not sure what his relationship with the club is after his brother left uh, to go to Watford, so there's there's probably something in that. But, Joe, that I mean, Sterling has to be kind of the, the standout of this group, right? For, for Sterling, I think the, the only thing that will stop him from becoming a really top-class player will be the uh, the mental aspect of the game. You know, I mean, he's so naturally gifted as a player. I mean, in, in terms of, uh, you know, athletically, I remember hearing about, you know, uh, probably maybe last year from some of the uh, the people I was hanging around with when I was with Lewis, um, when I was in Holland with Lewis Baker, they were talking about the, the athletes at Chelsea and Sterling came in, I think, as like a 16-year-old and smashed sort of three of Iron Robin's records that had stood for, you know, 10, 10 years in terms of these sort of uh, sprints and shuttles and, you know, these the kind of athletic testing they're doing pre-season. Sterling had come in pretty much, you know, off the uh, off the beach in the summer, first day, and, and completely blissed them. So, I mean, from a, an athletic standpoint, yeah, I mean, he's going to be insane. I think uh, it's for him, it's just purely, purely mentally. Dan, any thoughts? Um... Yeah, you know, I, I think uh, Mason Mount is probably one that I've been interested to watch a little bit more with Vitesse this season. Hasn't got a, a t- ton of chances, but actually I think has popped up on a couple of lists here recently as uh, a top prospect too. And so it's, it's interesting to see uh, if uh, Tre- uh, Trevor Trelobo will be happy after uh, you know, uh, Nate Dog has gone off to Watford and um, will want to either follow in his brother's footsteps maybe instead of staying. So I think there's a couple of... Uh, Interesting question marks here for this uh, this grouping of uh, next tier, kind of behind the you know Abraham Loftus Cheek uh, class. So uh, Dujan Sterling, obviously he is an athletic freak, which will help him get to that level, right? Like his athleticism will help him overcome the technical abilities he may not have. Now you talk about Mason Mount, Dan. He's been likened to Lampard and is like a complete footballer, right? He's smart, he's technical on the ball, can pick a pass. Essentially, he can kind of run the team from the middle and and, and play off that. So I'm really interested to see how he does as well. Obviously, he's at Vitesse. Uh, He's played in 12 matches this season, does have two goals, um, six matches in the Eredivisie and four in the Europa League. So he's getting some time, right? He he's, you know, not going to Vitesse and sitting on the bench, you know, which is good. So uh, we'll have to see how he goes. Uh, Tweeds would love for you to uh, get another, you know, 
on-site visit and, and check up on Mason Mount so see how he's doing. Um, that would be fantastic. But it, it, it'll be interesting to see. Obviously, there's a bit of a gap, and we and we get that, and, and we know. But um, I think that it's a good thing that there's a big gap from our academy and our first team. I mean, are we, like, on the same page with that, guys, where it's good that Chelsea are at the top of the Premier League and in Europe, um, and maybe it's because of that it is harder for the youth to get up there? Well, yeah, I mean, naturally, right? Like, if you're Tammy Abraham and Chelsea brings in, um, you know, a bona fide superstar uh, in the making and Alvaro Morata, you know, I think there is a level that you're going to have to jump up to, you know. But, you know, I, Joe, specifically, you know, we liken this to, you know, American sports all the time. You know, if, if you're not willing to go chase and and get better and and meet the level or exceed the level of the person in front of you like times you're you're just not gonna have the time you know it's just competition 101 right yeah i mean i i definitely agree with uh with that but i, I think the the slight difference of the nuance here at chelsea and, and just slightly bringing the conversation back to emanalo is that my understanding and really one of the key oversights when people talk about his uh, you know relationship with the academy was was to develop these pathways for the players into the uh, into the first team and for me personally that that doesn't involve going out and buying you know fairly you know sort of six or seven out of ten players who play in the position and sort of loading up a position where you might have two or three really good central midfielders coming through you know and then you go out and buy a, a Danny Drinkwater or someone of, of that kind of ilk who potentially may um, may stop them from playing so yeah I mean I, I completely agree there is, there's definitely an element of next man up um, you know you, you want to be better than the than the players that they're bringing in but I think equally it also does come back to the fact that you know Danny Drinkwater will infinitely get more chances to play for Chelsea than a Chelsea Academy product just by the virtue of the fact that we brought him in so um, yeah it's, it's, it's kind of a bit of a, a double-edged sword you know you, you need to be as good as the players that they're bringing in but equally you know those players often get more opportunities uh, than the Academy players which I, I you know is one of the things that, that does uh, I say it, it annoys me it does frustrate me um, you know a, a, a sort of senior player or some player who's brought in can can maybe drop, you know, four or five games, you know, in a row where he's been pretty below average or pretty poor and yet can still play the sixth game. Whereas, you know, the, the sort of opinion around youth team players is if they're not a 10 or 11 out of 10 every single sort of second they're on the pitch that they, they can kind of disappear for months on end. So, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm all for sort of adopting more of a uh, kind of a, a meritocracy at the club. I don't think it necessarily exists at the moment, but I think it's, it's something that I'd like to see the club work towards a, a little bit more stringently at least. I think that's a good point too, Joe, with the idea that the measuring stick somehow seems to pull up two different lengths when you talk about a player that has a higher price tag who's brought in, who has a pedigree versus a player who's grown up from the youth, which you figure the opposite would almost be an effect from the the fan perspective, because I think the fan perspective should align more with the, you know, hey, Ruben is being played out of position. He hasn't had a ton of group you know minutes and we should give him some time to grow and figure it out um, versus Oh, uh, hey, you know, Fabregas has, you know, played really poorly in the midfield uh, for this stretch of games, but he's a world-class player, so he's going to pick it back up. And, and that that's just a weird kind of thought, logical thought process, and I feel like it fails some some checks and balances appropriately from the, you know, kind of just sense of reality. Yeah, I, I also think it challenges the first-team players as well, because like you're saying, if you've... Now, if you can get to a comfort level, you know you're basically going to play every game regardless of how you're performing. I mean, for me, that's not a very kind of motivational 
way for a professional athlete to be. If, if I've been dropped for a 17-year-old for two games because I'm playing rubbish, I mean, that, that to me says I need to go and fix up and start performing better. I think it's a bit more of a motivational tool than, you know, if you look at go back to the, the Gus Hiddink period of the, what's it, the 15-16 season where I think Matic and Fabregas were like regularly playing like really, really poorly, definitely below par every single week. And yet Loftus-Cheek's just sitting on the bench twiddling his thumbs, you know, and barely, barely play for the remainder of the season when he could probably have played every week and we really wouldn't have noticed a difference anyway. So, you know, it's just that kind of concept with, you know, the, the players that they will rediscover their form at some point, which, you know, potentially has, has some merit to it, but, you know, it doesn't necessarily apply to, to youth team players. I mean, look at Christensen this season. He's had some really, really good games. You think, okay, that he's definitely done enough to cement himself in the team next week, and he gets dropped. You know, so it's a it's a different standard um, for the youth team players and the established players. But you know, I think it's it's something that the club has, has done for a long time now. And whether they want to change that culture, I don't know. <clears throat> All right. Well, I think we're going to go ahead and uh, wrap up the academy part. Uh, we want to do uh, a quick message about our trip coming up to London this spring, uh, and then we're going to wrap up this whole. Michael Eminol trifecta with the Lone Army. So real quick, Dan, the trip this December to see Newcastle and Atletico Madrid in the Champions League is closed, but we do have another opportunity, maybe even a better one for some people coming up. Yeah, at the uh, end of March uh, 2018, we're going to be heading over to London once more. And that time is going to be to see uh, Chelsea beat Tottenham at the bridge. And uh, I actually think, Joe, you're going to potentially be there as well. Uh, yes, 100%. Oh, which right. uh, gives yeah. you even more reason uh, to potentially think about booking that. And uh, also the time of year to maybe ask family, friends, loved ones who are, you know, who've been knocking on your door saying, hey, you know, do you want a gift for this holiday or is there anything in mind? Uh, we are working with XL Tours to figure out how they can uh, help gift that experience to you. So uh, stay tuned for more of that. Yeah, guys, like we, we are super psyched about the, the spring trip as well. Kind of our spring break as adults <laughs> to go and, and watch Chelsea. So, yeah, email, DM us, let us know, and we can make um, kind of special requests back to XL Tours. All right. Well, as we said, uh, the third part of Michael Eminalo's kind of uh, oversight within Chelsea's technical director is the lone army. And this is probably what he's best known for, I would say. Um, Chelsea, from my knowledge, were one of the first, if not the first, to really kind of blow open how teams use uh, loans to actually not only just advance players uh, from an ability standpoint, uh, but now we're using it as a revenue stream to buy players early on when they're younger, um, buy them at a low price, give them some loans, let their value rise, and then sell them for a profit. So obviously, Dan, we know that Chelsea's loan army isn't a hundred percent with the best intentions of getting players to the first team, but by no means is it completely not either. Like it's not just a money-making model. Well, and yeah, I think you have to look at, you know, what the first team is comprised of right now. And in terms of prospects that, you know, Victor Moses who had gone out on loan and now is a first team player, uh, Thibaut Courtois who went out on loan and is now a first team player. And, and some of it is, uh, skill set, right? I think before Courtois went on loan, um, you know, very clear, you know, by going to Atletico, recognized that he was a extremely high caliber player. Uh, Victor Moses kind of had to bounce around a little bit and then find the right system and the right manager to to fully invest in him. So I think there, you're right that there has been 
you know, players who have made it through and it's been successful. We're seeing the, the fruits of Christensen's uh, two-year Mancha Gladbach loan kind of take hold now. Uh, but then there's also loans out there that, uh, you know, really, you know, Matt Miazga kind of purchase and loan kind of question in a sense there. Lewis Baker, who I know uh, Joe is very fond for going to Middlesbrough due to, you know, late signings. Uh, in this season to go from uh, training dummy essentially in practice to playing for Middlesbrough in the championship when potentially could have been uh, like a couple of uh, other players playing in the Premier League this season. So uh, I, I know, Joe, that there's uh, it, it's it's kind of a seesaw on, in how effective or not effective the Lone Army is based upon what player we're talking about and you know where they're at currently. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's, it's kind of almost split into two sort of separate uses of the loan system you've got one which is very much a a sort of very straightforward exercise in generating revenue you know it's about making money from these players it's about a increasing their their uh, you know ability to to play and obviously to, to put them in a shop window and to develop to sort of develop them without really any risk to chelsea you just send them off to some random place and hopefully they come back a better player and you can sort of capitalize on them and then if you know you do this sort of five six times a season you can maybe sort of nick you know 10 15 20 million pounds and and try and spin that into uh, maybe buying a better player same with some of these loan fees i think the the first time really that this got broached publicly was I think possibly around the Kurt Zuma deal. So I think Zuma uh, or Stoke are paying a, a, I think a monthly fee for, for Zuma um, as well as on top of it as an initial fee as well. So, um, yes, and, and these fees can be pretty, you know, pretty significant in terms of the, you know, the initial outlay for the player. So, you know, someone like Zuma, I think costs sort of what, I think it was eight or nine, maybe 10, 12 million pounds, something like that. We probably have recouped a fair amount of that now, probably 25, 30, 40% of that by sending him out on loan. Um, again, I think, you know, Chelsea are very um, uh, observant of sort of financial fair play. And, and, you know, if you sort of, you're taking a lot of this cost off the books for a, spe- a specified period of time, again, it's not something you necessarily have to factor into sort of financial fair play calculations. Um, but yeah, you know, th- that side of the business is one I think Chelsea have been, you know, it's it's not necessarily a great thing to say that players are there purely just to earn sort of the club some money, but you know they've been quite forward thinking in in treating the players almost as sort of financial securities. So you know, like a share or a bond or something that they would trade, just sending them out to the market, letting them accrue some value, and then sort of selling selling them kind of periodically to sort of bring in cash. Um, it's certainly one side of the equation, and I think the second is you know to give the club credit is is where they are trying to target. Um, players who they think have got the most sort of high ability, so someone like Andreas Christensen or Thibaut Courtois, um, probably good examples of this, where they've actually targeted the club, they've done the analysis on the playing style and they see a, a potential first team spot, whether that's a starter or a squad, whatever of them, and they actually invest the time into making sure that they get the best possible uh, development opportunities out on loan. So, yeah, you know, I think there are, you know, there's, there's different varying degrees of success here as well. You know, I think, you know, you can name maybe four or five players that have had a, a very big success in going on on loan you've Christensen I think has been fantastic Courtois De Bruyne sadly at Man City Lukaku was here at Manchester United and probably Victor Moses who's now come back to the club and is actually contributing there might be a few more that I've left out but you know, from the, the vast amount of people that we've sent on loan since we've started doing this that might be a 4% return of people that have actually come back and had a positive impact at the club you know, and again, you know, it's, it's not saying that there is a a formula or some sort of mathematical equation that, that, that's going to increase that, but I think that the actual fact that, you know, I, I, it, the purest intentions of this loan system should be to take players 
send them away, get help them to improve and come back and, and contribute to Chelsea, not purely to the bottom line. And the fact that so few of them actually come back and, and even get a chance at the club. You know, I think uh, Baker being a very good example, had a fantastic loan spell at, at Vitesse, came back in the summer and was pretty much just treated as a... Uh, you know, as, as a body for training purposes and then left to the last minute and then obviously the, the Middlesbrough was kind of the best of the bad bunch by the time he got to pick which clubs he wanted to go to and you know I think he's he's fallen out with the manager there things aren't going very well so you know he, he wasn't afforded kind of the level um, of care potentially that someone who who could play for this club at some point should be given he was you know very much seen as an artifact by the club so you've got that kind of negative side of it as well but you know it, it kind of depends you know are the club happy to to produce someone like Thibaut Courtois, you know, who I think he's a world-class player, you know, every sort of, you know, six, seven years, you just think, okay, that's that's paid for the loan army, you know, it's paid for the all the ones that we've missed out on just, just by getting that one player in. Um, you know, it's 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 never going to be something which I think is uh, is fully accepted. You know, okay, we've got a position at the moment, for example, you know, one of the things that, that slightly irks me about Conte is that he continually moans about the depth of the squad, which is absolutely fine. The club didn't, you know, didn't necessarily secure the transfer targets, but... He sent at least sort of you know five to ten players on loan this season that he was comfortable in, in giving the sign off for that would definitely have helped this season. So, you know, it's a, it's a question of, of these sort of five to ten players. Would they be more useful at the club now, or, or are they more useful when kind of you know playing for their loan club? So there is that kind of that, that question as well. But yeah, you know, I, I can only see it as something something that we continue, particularly um, given the the fact that this is probably one of our main revenue well not one of our main revenue streams but we're kind of very much ahead of the curve is in, in terms of using this as a revenue stream you'll notice that Manchester City have started to do it a lot more recently so they're actually adopting the the sort of model as well to, to treat it as a as a separate income stream so yeah you know, it is kind of like the, the cold hard facts and the cold hard business that is football you know I think you'll have continue to have players that the club believe in and think that they'll be first team players and they'll get treated in such a way but you know for every for every Ruben Loftus-Cheek or for every Thibaut Courtois or player that's gone on loan potentially with desires to come back and be a Chelsea player you've got a you know Ulysses De Vere or all these kind of random players who appear like their football manager regents you know who have just disappeared into the ether so yeah it's it's tough you know and it, 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 all, it all comes down to the question that we keep asking ourselves just, you know, are, are Chelsea just content with results because if they are and then again they'll point to the fact that you know the money that they've been able to recruit from some of this has been you know has been funding players that have helped them win two league titles in the past couple of seasons when, you know, I think a lot of people are saying that Chelsea have, have been a bit up and down over the past couple of years. So, you know, if it's an entire results-based business, I can see the club being quite happy with it. If it's about producing first-team calibre, first-team standard players, I still think we've got quite a little way to go to uh, to make sure that that's uh, more of the focal point than the, the uh, financial side of things. Well, and in terms of Conte real quick, like I'm sure he wanted... He wanted to force the club's hand to buy players by pushing those people out maybe earlier than they should have been, unfortunately. But, you know, overall, as the loan army goes, my understanding is that, you know, re reading about things that Roman Abramovich loves this idea. Um, he loves the idea of, um, you know, essentially hedging your bets, right? I think you kind of talked about that, Joe. Uh, spread your investments wide and far, and you'll get some that are winners. And Chelsea have also found a way to really not have any losers when it comes to the loan army, which... Like you said, though, there are some guys still hanging on that really haven't done much to, to help. Um, you've got guys like Christensen who have done well. And then you've got guys like Piazon who are just fed up and tired with it. And, you know, I'm sure Chelsea always dangle the carrot and say, you've got a chance, you've got a chance, you've got a chance. But 
Um, again, from an ML standpoint, uh, I was doing some research on transfer market and they were running some numbers and said that Chelsea have six of the top 10 uh, biggest market value gains for loanies. So that means out of the top 10 players that went on loan and had their value rise, Chelsea owns six of those players. And then they also own 10 of the top 25. So obviously players like Thibaut Courtois, Andreas Christensen, even Hernan Crespo, uh, Alex Thorgan-Azard, and Mikel Forcell. Again, this is going way, way, way back. This isn't in the last five years. So this does kind of go outside of MLs, but it just kind of, you know, even Thomas Callas, Lewis Baker, Romelu Lukaku, all of these people's, all these players, their value has increased because of the own army. So you think it's working, but again, the question I have to go back to, Dan, is, is the gap too big to go from the lone army to the first team? Or are we finally starting the last year or so, starting to see that actually narrow with maybe different locations for these loans, not always going to, um, you know, League One, League Two kind of teams, but actually getting Premier League loans and other, you know, Europa and Champions League type teams for their loans. Yeah, I think we've we've lucked out on a couple with players that have you know fans have seemed to shine to appropriately. Tammy Abraham uh, going to work under uh, Clement uh, Clement in you know, Swansea. We've had the chance to see Ruben heading to you know was you know FDB, but then uh, now Hodgson at, at Palace was nice to see. And then we've also had a chance to see Christensen with that that two year loan spell at Mönchengladbach, which really gave him that opportunity for, for extended minutes here and, you know, gave the club kind of an understanding that they would have two years to really work with a player, wouldn't have to think about uh, potentially at the end of the season now needing to just replace that player because they've been either folded back into Chelsea or you know, sold for a profit. Um, you know, I, I don't think the gap is large. It's, it's kind of dependent upon the player, upon the positional need at Chelsea, and I think, you know, some of these players are kind of going up against, you know, and Hazard in the position, which is going to be really, really hard to overcome. But, you know, I think, Joe, when you think like a Tammy Abraham, essentially, you know, being kind of there as a, on the level of Bashwai as a, a replacement striker for Morata, I mean, it doesn't look like there should be much of a gap left for him to kind of surpass at the end of this season to to really be that choice. No, I mean, I think that the, the general point of view, and this is something that I've said quite a few times on, on sort of various social media, is that the, the gap between sort of, you know, the Chelsea team of like 2005 to like 10, 11, for example, and, and the youth team and the gap now, it's, it's nowhere near as great. You know, you're not looking at competing with, you know, Michael Ballack and Essien and, and, and Makaleli and Lampard in their prime. You know, that that for me is a, it's a situation that I, I didn't really look at youth team players and think, OK, it'd be nice if they can get some game time. But I mean, we've got, you know, four or five absolutely top class players here. I think you look at the you look at some of the positions in the team now. I look at wing back. I look at centre back. I look at midfield. I, I even look at the uh, the forward. You know, and I think you know beyond maybe the first choice player there, there is scope for for a youth team player to come in quite quite early in their career now and not necessarily have to go on loan until they're like twenty two, twenty three, and actually contribute to to the side. You know, I think someone like. Uh, 
Digital Sterling, you know, so the guy we spoke about a little, little bit earlier, has got all the physical tools to play adult football now. You know, he's maybe he needs to work on the mental aspects of his game, but I mean, as, as a pure athlete and pure ability to handle adult football, he could definitely cope straight away. So, if there was a way of kind of you know introducing him, him, him into the team in some capacity, that I would definitely look to do it because you know the difference between what uh, what Victor Moses is and what Zappa Costa is and what Dijon Sterling could be. Dijon Sterling could be a world class. You know, wing wing back. He could be a world class fullback. Moses is is a good player. Sabacosta is a, is an okay player. They're, they're, they're both kind of you know near near their ceilings. But if you invested time in someone like uh, Sterling now, started trying to drip feed him into the team, you never know. By the end of the season, he could be he could be starting. I mean, the potential with with some of these players now is is that they could definitely usurp some of these worker with these uh, weaker areas within the side. So yeah, you know, I think the the gap isn't as big as what it was. Um, I still think. A, a proper two-year loan for someone. So something like Mason Mount is, is probably going to go on a two-year loan to the test. You know, where they kind of they get adjusted to the culture, the style of football, the management within sort of that first six-month period. It was the same with Baker. He didn't play a lot during that first six-month period, but they, they kind of learn how to be a professional footballer, how to be a professional, how to be a, a player in adult football, how to be a, you know, how to conduct yourself when the guy who's marking you, his entire family's welfare is on the fact that he's got to kick you up in the air for the next 90 minutes. It's a different mentality. And you learn that sort of over that first six months. Then the rest of the 18 months, that, that's, when, that's your time to go and completely ball out. That's when you start showing everyone just how good you are. And these these two-year loans, I think, for me personally, that's going to be the best way forward. Send someone who is capable and good enough at 18 or 19 away for two years let them develop obviously keep in touch with them make sure that they're playing that they're happy that they're developing how they should bring them back at 21 22 see what they look like and maybe try and get them a premier league loan for a season to adjust to the premier league and then see where they go from there so you know i think that's that probably the best way forward probably what chelsea were hoping that they could try and do with baker this season but you know for for reasons kind of out of baker's control and probably from the club's slight lack of planning in terms of the squad um you know that that didn't kind of come to fruition but I would imagine, you know, someone like Christensen or someone who's followed Christensen's kind of development path, that that potentially is what Chelsea might be looking to do in the future. Two-year loan, store, store them away, keep them out of sight, out of mind, let them develop, let them get better, let them work on all their weaknesses, learn how to become a professional footballer, learn how to play an adult football, come back, hopefully, you know, if they're good enough to come straight into the squad, fair enough. If not, Premier League loan and then see where they can go from there. Well, I mean, it sounds like we... I would agree that the loan army has closed that gap. And I think that the building of this really has helped bridge the gap from the academy to the first team. Because I think we can all agree that that is just far too big of a gap these days. So uh, that's good to know. All right. Well, uh, you know, I think that our top loan players, obviously, everyone's going to say Tammy Abraham, Ruben Loftus-Cheek, Kurt Zuma, uh, I think is the, the players most likely to break through. Um, you know, I think that Lewis Baker, unfortunately, stalled. Ola Aina has stalled a little bit. Uh, maybe even Boga and Izzy Brown. I know there's been some injuries for some of these guys, but uh, we'll just have to wait and see. Uh, but like I said, the fact that we have Premier League loans for players this season is very exciting. And they're, especially with Ruben and uh, Tammy doing so well, it just makes it that much more uh, exciting for us. And then Zuma, a little bit rougher of a spell at Stoke. They are getting absolutely rocked right now, uh, conceding tons of goals. Um, but, you know, I'm sure Mark Hughes will shut up shop sooner than later. So um, obviously, it, you know, as I as I roll into the final thoughts here, 
I would say that we talked a lot about the different parts of MNL's, you know, kind of tenure at Chelsea. Uh, I would say while you maybe don't always agree with everything that has been done, for the most part, um, it may not be as big of a jump as everyone, but it sounds like he's leaving Chelsea in a better position than where he left uh, or than when it started. Uh, Dan, um, would you agree, disagree with me on that? That's kind of my sentiment is I'm not the biggest fan of MNL, but I can appreciate and I think that he's done some, some good stuff at Chelsea. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think no one leaves a job with a performance review that says you never made a mistake, right? Like you probably at some point have made one issue or kind of problem uh, as, as kind of came through. I think when you look at the, the highlights and things like bringing Ed Hazard into the team and then the lows of the palpable discord era, uh, the, you know, there's there's a big kind of gamut, but I think also, you know, Emanalo is not, you know, ended up willingly kind of jumping in as the scapegoat for uh, a pretty bad period of time and uh, isn't the one who is kind of responsible for all transfer activity in the club, which I think he is, uh, you know, kind of generally given a little too much uh, credit for in that regard. I mean, he's uh, an advisor. He's someone who's very well thought of by you know, the Roman and the club, but really wasn't the, uh, the villain figure that, uh, most people tended to make him out to be Joe. Yeah. I mean, completely echo that. I mean, I think he's, he's never been as villainous or virtuous as, as I think, you know, certain sides of the conversation would like to make out. Um, you know, I think his, his future career will kind of often perhaps dictate, Know, how uh, how well he's seen at Chelsea. I think he's done uh, he's done some good here. He's done some not so good. You know, I think he's he's taken a lot of punches for others. You know, at, at the kind of board level and deflected a lot of attention. And I know that's not necessarily a skill to say that he was an excellent punch bag. But I mean, you know, it's a uh, it's a skill in kind of senior management to be able to deflect attention from from certain other members. But yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see um, how he kind of goes in his his future career. I mean, I kind of maintain that I don't I don't think he's this kind of world class operator that certain people will make him out to be. Um, you know, he's had a lot of very good scouts at the club but in the time he's been here. He's got probably the, you know, the world's premier kind of academy director and Neil Bath working for him as well. So you know, a lot of that is, is made easy by the people who works for him. But you know, there, there has to be someone in there to kind of be a structure and knit it all together. And I think from a kind of political networking and like a political kind of, yeah, that kind of sort of sphere of, uh, of Chelsea, I think he's, he's been pretty useful. So, yeah, it'll be very, very interesting to see what direction the club going afterwards. So I think that's going to be probably more interesting than the, uh, than the actual Emanalo. Is he good or isn't he good uh, discussion? All right. And if you haven't figured out by now, Nick did drop, unfortunately. So we're going to have to end this without him. Uh, we did get some questions uh, at Brotoff79. Um, Ahmed Helfawi, uh, Bearded Bard, Jeremy, Fly the Blue Flag, Fly the Blue Flag, uh, McLean underscore Marsha, and LSMOU008. I'll ask the same question. Who's next? Who is going to replace him? Uh, and it's pretty interesting. So, Joe, a lot of people are saying, is it going to be an existing technical director from another club? Or is it going to be a former Chelsea player, Lampard, Drogba, uh, Balak, uh, Viali, even some of those you know players that played back in the day have all been thrown out. Um, who do you kind of think would flow into this role moving next? I know that they hinted at maybe restructuring Chelsea's kind of management structure, but um, I guess with all that being said, what do you think? 
So, I mean, my, my general thoughts around Chelsea is I think they're, they're trying to position themselves as kind of a Borussia Dortmund-style club and that we, we, bring, we bring in young talent, we develop young talent. You know, we identify young talent in sort of their early 20s, we bring them in, we develop them. Maybe we sell them on like Oscar, maybe they become superstars and they stay at Chelsea. So, you know, I think there's a, you know, we have to sort of realise that with the PSGs and Man Cities and, and other clubs of that nature, we're not necessarily shopping in the same supermarkets now, whether we could go and buy like a Neymar for like 200 and however million pounds he was. You know, I don't think that's the case anymore. So I think the club's trying to reposition itself as kind of a, a Dortmund style um, operation so I mean if that's going to be the case I mean the, the two names that really spring to mind I'm a big big fan of Neil Bath I think what he's done at a youth team level has been fantastic and it would give the club a lot of continuity he knows the club inside out he knows all the youth team players he knows the academy he's been able to set up a world class institution pretty much that's uh, you know so so well considered that it's kind of autonomous within Chelsea which is not necessarily what you would normally associate with, with the club um, you know let him maybe sort of rethink the scouting side of things at the uh, at the senior level and see what he can do because I think in, in that kind of role you know his uh, his ability to scout players and to take talent has been pretty much unparalleled because of the success we've had at youth team level so if that could translate to the senior level which I think it would because I think Bath's very capable then he would be the first choice and the second would be to look at someone maybe outside the club um, maybe someone like Ralph Rangit at uh, um, God, I've got the name of the team. So Red Bull uh, Salzburg. So uh, yeah, you know, he's uh, he's a sporting director there, and his ability to uh, to just take um, fantastic players from from kind of all random places, and, and, and you know, particularly in that sort of age bracket that we're we're targeting, I think is the uh, is the most important thing. Yeah, interesting. You know the way I look at it. Um... I don't know much about Neil Bath and, and, and kind of the people at Chelsea. So I think that it's usually easier to kind of promote from within because they're much more familiar to the workings. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I thought it was important that this person already has experience at a large club doing this type of role. So, you know, I'm actually a little skeptical skeptical about a Lampard, Balak, Viali who might not be as experienced, even though they are Chelsea through and through. So I actually opted, opted for like a Beppe Morata as my first choice, who's over at Juventus, who's been there and pretty much has helped Juventus go from Serie A Bay, Serie B to six of the last seven uh, titles being won there. I think that some of the deals they've done is we're looking at like these two year loans and some of the creative signings that they've done, Douglas Costa, um, getting some of these players on the fringe that still have a lot to give. I thought that he's been very spot on. Uh, if we can't get him, maybe like a close second would be uh, Monchi at AS Roma. Obviously, we firsthand know how well they've been doing. And, and then, you know, like you said, uh, uh, Joe, you have Zork at Borussia Dortmund, who has undoubtedly done a fantastic job with a massively limited budget there. Um, so I don't know. I guess, Dan, where do you think uh, Chelsea might go for the technical director role next? So I think you would hope for someone with the charisma and the personality and the connection to the club like Balak, but you would also want someone, uh, you know, I think the, the sporting directors for, uh, you know, Leipzig or Borussia Dortmund are a good shout. And if you could mold them together, that would be perfect. But I, I really, that line about the direction of the management structure uh, is probably where uh, I, I think we might have to wonder what, what it will look like when it is actually filled. And uh, that will be 
a really good opportunity for us to bring Joe back on and talk about the new sporting director or the new uh, director of football or technical director and uh, to evaluate them as they come on board. Awesome. Well, uh, let us know what you guys think about the Amanala piece. Obviously, there's a lot that goes into it. Uh, you'd hope that they have something in place ready to go for this upcoming January transfer window, which uh, could be a pretty pivotal one for Chelsea as it stands. But uh, thank you again, Tweets, for joining us. As always, we do appreciate uh, the level of knowledge that you bring to, to the pod. Yeah, no worries, guys. It's been a pleasure as always. Uh, Nick left, so he doesn't get a final thought. And Dan, uh, also thank you for taking some time out of another little staycation this weekend to hang out. <laughs> yes, uh, it's uh, you know some beverages around the the mini world of Epcot coming up here shortly. We'll enjoy that. And the rest of you listeners, uh, thank you for listening. Uh, we always appreciate it. And as always, uh, you can reach out to us. Happy to talk to you. But until next time, Chelsea fans, you know what to do. Keep the blue flag flying high. If you don't want the conversation to stop, make sure to follow the London is Blue podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you want to support the pod, you can leave a five-star review in iTunes or donate on Patreon.com. The London is Blue podcast, presented by WorldSoccerShop.com.